Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is DTC Growth Hacking with Rob McGray. Brought to you by Field Test. Advertising Simplified. You're listening to DTC Growth Hacking. My name's Rob McGray. This week's episode is a little different. We've had on over the past, what, nine weeks, so many different interesting folks that we wanted to kind of take a step back and and, and refresh ourselves on, on the interesting and compelling conversations that we've been able to have with folks. So this episode is dedicated to really taking in some of those concepts and and, and giving especially those of you who are wondering what's this all about and how does this impact my, my DTC efforts, et cetera, um, to give you a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a walkthrough of, of some of the moments that really stuck out for us. This first clip is with a friend of mine named Alex Black, and he's the director of marketing over at Grindr. And one of the things I was really excited to chat with Alex about was this idea of Grinder, the brand, and to ask him specifically, is there a time where Grinder becomes much more mainstream? Um, and, and how does that affect the customer base and the associations that, that Grinder has done such an amazing job of establishing for themselves? So. If you listen, you'll see we kind of dive in on that. You'll hear a lot of great information about how um, Grindr, and, and I think it relates to all brands, um, how much they value their, their relationships with their customers, but how also they want to be looking at new horizons and new territories and, and ways to scale themselves out. So, so I know that Grindr you know, is and has and will continue to expand beyond dating. Um, we talked a little bit in, in, in our earlier conversation about, you know, what that could mean and, and how the, the grinder empire was growing. Can we talk a little bit about, cause what, where I want to, where, what I'm really interested in is, you know, like how that scale happens. And is there a point where grinder becomes more mainstream or is it something that is so tied to the community and and you know that the community is almost possessive in a way yeah um yeah i mean i think over the past couple of years especially grinder has uh, you know been increasingly you know thinking of itself as a, as a lifestyle brand and maybe you know uh, holding more for our, for our users in our community than just the kind of bare functionality of, you know, meeting people for hookups, dates, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, Grinder users are super engaged. Our average user spends about an hour a day on the app, and that's just the average user. So we have users who are spending a lot more time than that. And and uh, so yeah, I think I think we've always we've always seen a lot of potential in connecting people with more than just other people. Can we connect them with you know culture, events, content, news, um, you know? Uh, so we, you know, one of the things Grindr did a couple of years ago was it launched a digital magazine called Into, and that was kind of one of the first big forays into expanding the brand and the product into more lifestyle uh, direction. And, you know, that was really, that was actually a really successful project. The, it was, they created a lot of really great award-winning kind of uh, journalism around the queer community and global equality and, and you know, it was it was a super incredible project. It ultimately was something that the company um, you know shuttered after a couple of years because it was it was a, it cost a lot. It wasn't bringing in a lot of revenue. But I, I think that 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 kind of initial experiment uh, in 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 creating kind of content and culture and really connecting people to a larger kind of uh, picture of the LGBTQ community is something that's, that's stayed on. So we still make a lot of content. We still do a lot of video. We have a digital zine called bloop and always kind of looking for ways to keep our users connected and engaged with, with, with more than just, you know, the kind of like typical dating app stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's been, that's been something that's, that's continued after that initial into experiment. Yeah, I, I just want to I want to emphasize, you know, the 60 minutes average per day is a massive number. And <laughs> for everyone listening who knows how what a big deal that is, I mean, that is that is a massive accomplishment, you know, um, and I could see how I could see how when you're looking at that and you're thinking about, you know, what else could we provide people you know, from a, almost like a service perspective, like what other kinds of information can we give them? Because they're here. For sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's everything from, it's been everything from like entertainment. We do, you know, really some fun kind of, you know, just like celebratory videos, spotlighting people in the community, talent, uh, you know, we do a lot of comedy stuff. Um, uh, comedy content has always performed really well for us and, and continues to, but also, it's been, you know, connecting people with sexual health resources, connecting people with, uh, you know, we did a huge get out the vote campaign uh, last year. So we, you know, we use the platform to, to connect our users to, you know, everything that I think we, we feel is, is valuable to them, uh, you know, as, as, as members of the queer community, you know, beyond just dating. So yeah. that's something we're constantly kind of working on. I love that Alex is constantly talking about in the interview um, that that there's this responsibility that Grinder feels it has to its community and to to bring them um, all kinds of different things. And I just think it's 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 such a great way to look at it. And you know, and, and as that what it is, it's a responsibility. Um, shifting gears a little bit, our our latest episode is with a, a woodworker. Uh, named CC Boyce, and CC is a, an amazingly talented um, professional um, craftsperson. 
And we sat down and we really kind of dug into her latest product, which is called the Plantern. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of sweeping the nation right now. Like literally, it's a huge deal. And one of the things that was really fascinating was, you know, as, as a small business owner, the, the, just how far CC will go to provide that personal touch um, with the folks who are, who are purchasing our products and, and what an amazing experience and how connected that customer must feel not only to CC as the creator of the product, but to the, the product that they, is going to ultimately reside in, in their homes and, and actually hold the remains of, of, of their loved pets or loved ones. DTC is so many different things to so many different people, but you know the the thing that I always go back to is that there's this really special relationship between the the maker of a product and and especially in your case because you you are literally making these you're you're sourcing the wood yourself you're mm-hmm. you're, you're touching these you're I mean they're they're in they're they're they're, they're with you for so long before they go to the customer. Um, mm-hmm. that DTC is, can be a very personal kind of experience. And, and I'm wondering, like, what is that experience like for you as the creator of, you know, these urns and, and, and how close do you get to them? And do you, you know, kind of wonder where they're going or where are they sitting or who's going to, who has this, you know, because they're yeah. kind of this weird extension of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially with what I make and the emotion that is connected to these, I'm even more involved. And that I think has lent itself to the success of these is because I do take it so personally. It is so hands-on. I am, yeah, they take hours to make. And I do wonder where, where they're going. And people do let me know. They give, they send me pictures. Um, I get a lot of emails afterwards from people, which is so heartening. Um, but to, it was fantastic for me during the pandemic because I live by myself. I work by myself. So to have these conversations with people, either emails with people, zoom calls with people talking about their urns and kind of showing them in real life. It's, it's, it's much easier to show somebody and, and the, the wood that I have or what, what the choices are than, you know, 25 emails back and forth. So something that, that maybe not everybody does, like not everybody has a zoom call with a bunch of their customers. To me, it actually expedited things. It might, it might, that might bog down somebody else who's making something else. But for me, that expedited the process. So that was really gratifying to be able to connect with people during the pandemic know that I was helping people, um, you know, cause we all, you know, we all felt so helpless. We all felt yeah. so disconnected. And so it was really, yeah, I, I loved what I, I, and I still love what a personal experience it is to, to talk to people and to make something especially for them. Cece, would, would, would these people, would they tell you their stories like of, of who the orange were for? Like yes. you'd, you'd really yeah. get to understand like, who your customer was in a, in a, in a very direct way. Yes. Yeah. And, and not, and not everybody shares their story with me, but the people who were asking for something custom or needing to talk to me, they absolutely did. And, um, I was very comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable with, with, um, 
sitting in that grief or allowing somebody that space to, um, to be vulnerable with me. And I, you know, I, I'm not uncomfortable with that at all. So I think that also was helpful to people that they could tell me who it was for, maybe how they died, um, where they were going to put it. You know, sometimes people buy more than one and they split the cremains amongst family members. So they were, you know, they would, I, I would get on calls with families, you know, and then they would, they would give me their, their input. You know, I'd have, I'd have, you know, a few, windows going at the same time. So yeah. So again, that lends itself to the personal nature of it too. Cause I, and while I'm making it, I know exactly where it's going. I know exactly who it's going to. And, you know, I do think of them as I, as I make the urns. Yeah. I, I hadn't really, uh, fully absorbed that part of it. Um, you know, and I, 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 I wonder, you know, through that process, if, if, you know, the, the folks who are grieving, um, if it's bringing them some peace, because in a way they're, they're create, they're, they're collaborating on this, on this, uh, vessel, you know, with you for their loved ones. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, that's who it's for. Right. It, right. It, I think in, in your mind, and I know that the one that we have at home, um, you know, we feel like, like it was a really nice, thing to do for the, for the pets and like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's right there on the mantle and it's, and it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and for listeners, if you, if you haven't seen these already, you'll see there's a place where something like an air plant could go and, you know, and this idea of life, you know, um, that's represented through it as well, which is really magical and special. And I know it's, it's such a simple thing, but it, but it works so well. Um, I think, I, I really think that you've, you've got your unicorn, um, with this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. 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 I, I, I definitely think it is my niche for sure. I think, you know, I, I, I do have a, a past of a, a lot of loss in my, in family and friends. I've had a lot of people pass away. I don't think that's why I make these, but I do think I am well suited to make these because I'm comfortable with, with death and I, and I've gone through it. I know what happens afterwards and I know, you know, whatever the, the complications that can arrive and the family rifts and, and the, the, all the stuff that you have to take care of after my part of it is going to be easy for you. Like the part, you know, finding the urn, finding something you like, I'm going to make that easy. So then you have, you can worry about, whatever it is with your brother or your aunt or the will or whatever like my part is 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 simple it's going to be beautiful it's going to be well made and it's going to get to you i just want to say the other important thing about what cc's doing is that she's really approaching her business from a place of, uh, you know, being open, being collaborative, and very, very comfortable with being vulnerable and, and empathetic. And that's, you know, for both for her, but also dealing with those feelings coming from her customers as well. In this next clip, I sat down, I talked with uh, my friend Thomas Wadsworth over at Stroom, and they are a video service platform, and it was such a good conversation. And, and one of the things that really struck us here at the podcast was this idea of, of how a, 
a, a company could really leverage great partnerships and and use cross promotional techniques in in a way that that was good for everybody um, the customer the partner and, and and the company themselves and and to hear Thomas describe it it was very different than the way I heard it described it before described before and, and very different from the way I that I had thought about it so so check out what Thomas has to say um, it was a great episode but but this is a really I think a really key point to to the Stroom strategy. So let me let me let me kind of shift a little bit right now because you guys are coming. You're in your what what we could call your soft launch. Yeah, you've got your um, I believe it's your your iPhone iOS version mm-hmm. of the app is available today. Yeah, um, and it has been for like two days at this point. Um, yeah, you know, by the time we release this episode, it, it could be two months ago. Uh, but but it's been <laughs> out there. You know how how does I saw a lot of really good press. Um, you know through you know in the in the tent crunch kind mm-hmm. of New York Times. I think I read something in the, maybe the New York uh, the L A Times as well. Mm-hmm. Like like really good stuff. Um, I know that that's great for credibility and, and validating, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a company's launch or a company's status or whatever. But what I'm wondering is like, and I know it's, it's not a hundred percent in your area, but how are you guys are thinking about finding the audience for the product? Because you guys in a way do seem like a, a very, there's a lot of potential to be a powerful gateway to these channels, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. which, is, I, I, which I would assume would be the selling point to your channel partners is like, hey, you know, having you guys come to this party, you're going to meet a lot more people than if you're all through your own party. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of these a lot of the brands that we're bringing together and we're really trying to bring together like a lot of interesting content. Right. So, you know, I think about when I first discovered Tastemade and I was like, wow, there's a whole cooking channel that's entirely different than like the food network that speaks to more of the kind of content I enjoy, but yet the kind of things I want to make. And so I remember that moment of discovering something like that and then thinking, well, how many more channels are like that? And then when we're looking about um, how we're, how we're looking to find that audience, it's really about those kind of channel combinations. Because when you think about it, like many people subscribe to multiple services, one, two, four. Um, and so when you're looking at the kind of secondary services that you would subscribe to, whether that's echo boom, who has a lot of sports content or using the taste made example, again, if you package those up, that's an audience cluster right there. Right. And so that could be where we're now exposing the echo boom audience to taste made. And so one of the cells with two, our content partners was look, if you are, um, you know, BBC select, you have those users. People love the BBC. That's, that's already there, right? You're an active subscriber, but what about the people who don't know about BBC select? Maybe because they haven't decided to make the leap and sample it, or that you've just never been exposed to it by, by finding a channel using echo boom and then getting them over into BBC select, we can bring a whole new audience to those channels. And really you can start to, you know, sample and bring together your kind of what your channel uh, service looks like because we are services within services. And then later down the line, we're going to allow you to, you know, add those channels as subscriptions. You can really start to build that out. And then you can then start to understand where I'm spending my credits on, what I'm a subscriber to, what is interesting to me. And I think, you know, our tastes do shift, you know, not only with 
what happened in a day, what's happening in the world, but also, you know, the time of day. And um, I think once you start to pull all of these things, focused on discovery, allowing customers to put together their own channels, and then really looking at the service as a sampling model to go into what that next thing is, that's where um, I think we can really start to identify audience clusters and then start to go after them. Episode 8 had us speaking with Colin Godby from Upco Bikes, who is a really, really incredibly smart and, and passionate um, engineer. He's the, the chief product officer at, at Upco. And we really dived into a couple, a couple areas that I was so happy to talk about. And, and one of them was this, this concept of how you could really leverage uh, design principles and data to, to build better transportation systems. And, and the other was this ability to take on a very holistic approach um, and, and responsibility for, for what you were putting out into the world. And so it was saying, hey, your products actually are, are bigger than you know, just the effect that they have on humans and, and, and the service or utility they provide humans, but what is the effect of, of your product um, on, on, the, on the world itself? And so I, I think this is just so fascinating and, and I love what they're doing over there and I love the idea of everybody kind of downsizing to, to what did he call it, micro-mobility. Um, but give it a listen. And again, episode eight, it's a great episode. If you haven't heard it yet, I recommend you, you just go into the podcast list, listen to eight. If you love anything about um, great design, great design principles and, and engineering, you're, you're going to get a lot out of this conversation with Colin. I believe we were meant to move. Mm-hmm. It's why, you know, travel is so good for people, right? It, we're, we're meant to see things. We're meant to explore. We're meant to, you know, have these experiences. And, you know, if we're building devices that that enhance or better or enable that, I think we're doing something pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're doing it in a way that is less harmful for the planet um, and more thoughtful, I mean, that's where it's at, right? Yeah, totally. You know, and, and not only are we we built to move, we're you know destined to it, but we're also connected to the earth and the yeah. the environment around us, right? And so there is something kind of funny about designing our lives around homes and vehicles and other means of conveyance where we're completely sealed off, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I understand there's actually real practical concerns around two-wheel vehicle travel for safety, um, you know, those sorts of things. But I would argue at some level those safety concerns are because of the world that we've built around cars, right? And the ability to sort of switch off your brain, not focus, um, you know, and also just sort of the power dynamic, right, of having a, a two- or three-ton vehicle against something where you weigh uh, a total of 200 kilograms, right? Um, yeah. But there's so much data out there that actually says, like, these micromobility companies or even delivery companies that are showing two-wheel vehicles, micromobility type of um, format get through the city faster than cars, right? 
and part of that is because of flexibility and the, you know, how you can kind of go around obstacles, but also a big part of that is packing efficiency. Could you imagine how ludicrous it would be if in order for us to fly to Europe, every individual person had to have their own airplane, right? Like you couldn't yeah. do it, right? Like the sky would be full of airplanes, people crashing all over the place. Right. So why do we kind of do that same model with large vehicles, right? In a world where people are walking, cycling, using smaller format, kind of micro lightweight vehicles, whether the two or four, you just can get through that space so much more effectively um, with less safety risks, you know, higher speed or not higher speed, but actual, uh, I should say not higher velocity, but actually the speed between A and B is hot, is faster, right? Like the duration is yeah. lower. Um, because of what that unlocks, you know? And, and frankly, yeah, I, I want to, I want to live in a world where more people are on bikes or, you know, lightweight vehicles. Um, cause I'm an engineer and it's all about efficiency and optimization and, and it's just simply the right kind of way to cut the equation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a guest coming on soon and, and what her company has done is, um, focused on creating like traceability across the, you know, for, for foods. Um, so basically they started off with a fish company and they kind of track where the fish is caught, like, and, and everywhere it goes, all these points of contact, mm-hmm. you know, where, as it, as it goes across the world to get to you at your Kroger's or whatever. And so that you could just sit there with a phone and scan and say, okay, well, I can see the life of this, of this, uh, this this fish that I'm yeah. going to bring home and cook, and the thing that that doesn't exist, or at least that I don't know about today, is you know when I go and charge um, my electric car at say a supercharger, it doesn't tell me where that power comes from, mm-hmm. right? And it's mm-hmm. been it's been kind of the big mystery of of supercharging culture yep. is like because you do think about it like well, it, 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 is this just coming from coal? Is this, like where where does this really come from? And I think in in, in my in my grand like fantasy land, it's basically you could find out where the power came from. Yeah. So it's like, hey, this this you know this came from wind or this came from you know solar or this came from whatever, and you know X percent came from traditional, and we're trying to work that down. And yeah. I think that you know as consumers become more and more uh, concerned with what they're spending their money on, the sustainability, you know, things like diversity and, and product development, like they're going to want to know. And this is just another thing that they're going to want to know. And, you know, you guys are, are thinking about all these different devices and, and this platform. Um, and, and I wonder, like, how do other energy sources fit into the platform, if at all? Mm, that's a really good question. You know, Rob, I back to sort of the efficiency statement, right? Um, even if we keep the electric grid as it is and were to find a way to convert everyone to electric vehicles, simply the efficiency equation makes a very compelling argument to do that, right? Um, two to three times more efficient than a, a standard internal combustion engine. And if we're sourcing electricity from these power plants that are efficient at scale, whether they're natural gas or coal or whatever, they're actually high, high, high efficiency. So 
the, the resulting kind of end-to-end efficiency of your system, the means of conveyance, sort of irrespective of the actual machine that's driving you, is much higher, right? So I think that's a, a big win. But you're totally right. Like, we are becoming aware of this stuff, just the nature of the game. And what's really encouraging is that we're starting to see cost parity for alternative sources of energy for solar and wind now where even five years ago there is a pretty significant markup so it's changing so rapidly that i think in the next decade we're going to start to see those being the the sources of choice um for basically building a grid and and i think we're going to have to change the the grid the, the architecture of the grid to allow for you know sort of the consumption during certain hours for electric vehicle charging and you know sort of the changing yeah. demands so there'll be investment there but having a balance of a variety of different energy sources is going to enable us to have sort of that level loaded grid that's a little bit more distributed um and then for Ubco, you know, I think right now our stance is battery electric is the way to go. It's where significant investment is happening in the technology space. It's where there's really proven technologies already existing to kind of create these um, exciting experiences that are that are above and beyond, you know, the alternative. Um, you know, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we're fixed to battery electric. You know, like longer term. Um, you know, I think our, our ability to survive, to paraphrase, uh, you know, um, a scientist that we all know is our ability to survive is directly correlated to our ability to adapt. Right. And so, um, you know, Darwin, um, so if fuel cells become the thing, right. And for whatever reason, they start to catch up on being much more promising, more available, you know, let's let's innovate around using fuel cells for this same type of application, right? Um, but yeah, no, I think, I do think right for right now, electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles are the next big sea change that we're gonna see in technology over the next 20, 30 years. Our premiere episode. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Had a speaking with Peter Luttrell, who is the CEO of Field Test, who happened to be the producer of this podcast um, and, and the, the force behind, behind all of this. Um, you know, Peter has been in the industry for, well, since it became an industry, uh, and as have I, and we kind of, you know, came up together. And uh, I love the way that Peter thinks. I think he knows this business better than anybody else I know. Um, he's wise. He's experienced. He's he's a kind and 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 generous man. And. Uh, He's, he's a great communicator. And so I love how he kind of breaks down the way that we look at internet advertising. And, and the episode is amazing. And I've had so many people come back and say that, that it was educational for them. And they learned a lot of things that they did not know. Um, in this particular clip, we, we talk about um, where to find your audience um, versus finding your audience. Uh, in, in terms of, a, of, a, of a location online and uh, I just love it and it's a great point and again uh, this was our, our opening episode episode one if you haven't heard it this is basically telling you exactly why you should be listening to this podcast an immediate reaction when I talk about this is people ask me well what sites are my ads going to show up on? Sure. Right. And, and I think that th- that's tough to, to break away from that, that way of thinking about it. And, and how do you, how do you deal with, with that question? Well, if your backup sort of late from a legacy standpoint, if you're buying advertising somewhere and let's say it's legacy media, like magazines or television stations, you're going to choose the magazines and the newspapers and the television channels that you run your ads on based on, the audience that uses them. So you're trying to target people and you're using the context, the publisher as a proxy for a demographic or a psychographic or, or, or an interest. Um, so in the modern internet, we're able to, and in the open internet, we're able to target audience people and we're less concerned with the context and where you're running the site, um, you know, exclusive of like content adjacency issues or making sure that you're on, you know, premium publishers. So what I always tell people is, you know, the advertisements on field tests run on all the websites you go to and the people we're going to be targeting, uh, we're going to be targeting people, not context. So we're looking to follow a particular consumer through their experience on the day on the internet and not really, uh, run an ad adjacent to a particular publisher Though we can do that. That's not really the point, And that's not really where you're going to find efficiency, uh, on the open internet. Right. So, 
it sounds like stop focusing on where, start focusing on who. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. The, the open, like f- f- what field tests really makes use of and what makes it efficient for our clients is um, we take the first party data of our clients. So that's the folks that come to the their website, the folks that purchase on their site, uh, the activity on that site. And we use that to target new users who might not know about their product yet, um, but look just like the users who are already using their product, already buying from them. Um, and that data is really much more important than the context. So the, 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 the legacy way of buying media around publisher sites is really your best guess is that um, oh, I'm targeting stockbrokers. I should be in the Wall Street Journal. I'm targeting uh, fly fishermen. I should be in outdoor living. I'm targeting you know mothers. I should be in Parenting Magazine. That's great, and there is some crossover there. Um, but it's much better to target people who um, you know to target actual mothers because you know that they're mothers, or actual right. fly fishermen because you know that they've purchased fly uh, fishing equipment before. Um, so, so, so it's basically, you know, data-based versus assumption-based. That's right. That's right. right. Assumptions I mean, are still a big part of the yeah. game, but the data is going to tell you where users are. You know, we have lots of clients who come to us with really great assumptions around the personas of their buyers, and they're usually pretty right. But what's interesting is after a month or two, we can uh, look at the data together and see who... Who, who else is their buyers that they weren't aware of or where they're finding uh, folks that are interested in their product and purchasing it that they would never expected to, uh, which can be really interesting and illuminating and, and help uh, the, their next set of assumptions be smarter. There were so many things that I, I loved that Bo said during an interview, um, Bo Schmidt from, from Sunday Scaries. And, uh, and I loved his story. I loved this connection between being in a service industry, um, in Bo's case, hospitality, and how that translates to building a great customer-focused business and, and one that I think Sunday Scaries has, has become. Um, one of the things we, we got into was this concept of, of the, the responsibility of a brand to educate, especially, especially around a, a product that's very new, um, like CBD. And, uh, you know, listen to Bo's response. Go back and listen to the episode. Um, check out Sunday Scaries. It's a great product. Uh, and I, but again, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, and, and, and hopefully you'll be as enlightened as I was. Um, quality control is a major issue in the industry because legislation, um, research because legislation. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly believe that CBD will be a mainstay in, you know, the American healthcare system because it is so inexpensive and has so many, you know, potential benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for folks like you who, you know, own CBD brands, who are, you know, you know, I mean, even five years in or six years in or however long, you know, these companies have, have been, you know, popping up, I have to think there's a massive amount of education 
that you guys need to provide uh, along the way? There, there used to be, but the American public is pretty uh, smart. I mean, my personal opinion, of course, on on CBD. I mean, you know, when we launched in 2017, everyone was like, "Oh, I love CBD. It gets you gets you high. It gives me a body high." And we're like, "No, nah, doesn't really do that." <laughs> um, or what? You know, they were just curious, like, "What is CBD? What is you know?" we'd get emails about CDB and they would inverse the letters. And, you know, it just was really new. I mean, we could advertise on Facebook in 2018 unimpeded. Now it's nearly impossible with so many restrictions um, because they didn't even have anti-CBD policies. You're seeing the same thing right now happen with Delta 8. There's no policies around it because it's like a brand new cannabinoid that's really being discovered. Same thing with CBN. yeah. Who sets those pol- who sets those policies, by the way? Is it the networks? Um, or is, who, it's who reactive that? on I think it's reactive on a legislative level. It gets to a point where now it's an issue. Uh, but, you know, it's all internal for policy. Like we spoke with Bustle, um, a great publisher last week, mm-hmm. and they follow Facebook ad policies. That's that's how they actually um, or that's what we were told. Um, so, you know, Facebook sets ad policies. Maybe some publishers follow them a lot. A lot of publishers we work with are independent. That's why we can advertise CBD ingestibles. Um, but it'd be on a company level. And it really just tears down. It's cannabis and it's hemp. So therefore, it's cannabis, same as marijuana. I mean, we can't even do trolley wraps and bus wraps because the cities don't do anything really? cannabis related on you know public transportation. So, um, yeah, so your, there's definitely a, a stigma there. I mean, what's your prediction? Like, when does when when does this like get sorted out? Any idea? I think in the next year. I think Biden uh, administration is doing very progressive things. Uh, you can see that marijuana is being legalized at a rapid rate um, in, in states, and that is a very large waterfall effect. Um, you know that happens before CBD, and uh, and so I you know. Well, there's two questions there. One is legal is one is like clarification of dietary supplements and CBD as generally regarded as safe. The second is when will you know company ad policies change? Um, and that's obviously the depends on the speed of the company. A yeah. big, huge, massive company, it could take another year, or a small company, it could you know a publisher with five five people in charge, it could take you know a month. So. Yeah, so those are more individual decisions that are going to be made. Leanna Creel is one of the most awesome people to talk to in general, and I just loved getting to know her and learning about her journey and how she sees the world, and and specifically the opportunity that that she and her co-founder, Julie, at Views um, see for basically taking these devices that we all have in our in our pockets and turning them into these powerful real estate tools, um, specifically for agents. And uh, if, if you listen to Leanna and, and the way she looks at it and how she comes to this conclusion and, and what her thesis is based on, which is actually being in, in the video business, uh, I, th- I think you'll see, you'll see a lot of, of what I saw and, and what I, enjoyed so much about our conversation so here's um leanna from episode three uh, check it out i think you're really gonna enjoy it
Exactly. I don't, I can't remember if I told you this before, but in our other interview, the conversation, but you know, the whole idea for views came from when I was shooting um, a brand film for Christie's international reality, real estate. And we were traveling around the world and we did London and Monaco. It was a really fun job. It was definitely one of those where I'm like, I like what I do as a producer director. And, um, so we were looking for a place in Hong Kong and, um, and, and maybe Shanghai as well. So I was looking online and I could not believe these $65 million gorgeous apartments. And I am not even kidding. If I tell you, there would be like a shot of the toilet. Uh, they're completely unstaged, which is that's so that, that was okay. But the photos were so bad. It was like literally not one effort. And that's when I learned about that. They don't have exclusive listing agreements. So no one wants to spend any money. So I was like, okay, yeah, you don't want to spend money, but man, if you had an app and you could just rise above the, the very low bar that set. And I was that, but it was literally trying to find a a location in Hong Kong. I was like, wow, this is, you guys need help. Um, and, and that's when the CEO of, of, um, Christy sat me down and was like, okay, I love what you do with the video. And I need you to help me figure out how we're going to bring video to all of our, our, our agents in like, you know, 40 countries and 300 cities or whatever, like some crazy yeah. amount of agents and around the world. And we wanted to have a, a price point of like under a thousand dollars. And da, da, da. and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to supervise all that production. Like, I don't even right. know how that, that could even be done. It sounded so mind boggling. And that's when I was like, what you need is an app. And that's yeah. where that the whole idea came from was there has to be an easier way. Like I get, you don't want to spend thousands of dollars and, and, and hire what I was, what I'm doing my other job, <laughs> which I'm happy to do, by the way, if anybody's listening, you can pay me thousands of dollars. I'm happy to do it. I'll take it. Yes. But I also see like, um, you know, there's, you know, there's, especially with stuff that's flying off the market in this crazy day and age, just, just end with the, the tools that thank you, Apple have done for us. And, and as my dad will constantly say, Samsung, he's yeah. convinced that Samsung is a much, much better product, but I'm an Apple person, but it's amazing what these, the power that we have in our pocket, it's truly amazing. And um, to take decent. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of describing the activation of a network. And so to be able to say, Hey, yeah, if you want to scale this out, the, you know, you know, Christie's, if you want to scale this out, you've already, you've got endpoints everywhere. Every one of your people has a mobile phone. Yeah. We just need to figure out how to turn them on. And Mm -hmm. And, and get the data that we need from them. In this case, it's video data. Yeah. And get them over the, that's a fear and trepidation. The average age of a realtor in America is 56. And there's some very different from, you know, a digital native coming along. That's like, you know, posting 15 times a day. I mean, most yeah. people that are like close to 50 are like, oh, no, they're posting way too much. If you suggest posting more than once a week, you know, mm-hmm. so there's gotta be some middle ground. There's, you know, so we recognize that we're kind of hitting the market. There's a lot of millennials and stuff that are super familiar and super, you know, you know, wanting to push the envelope. And then we're coming against these old brands that are still as recently as just a couple of years ago, we're saying, don't try to do your own photos. Don't try to do your own video. You'll look like an amateur. And also the brands not wanting to have people just picking and choosing whatever font they want, you know, yeah. in terms of keeping brand consistency. So, um, so I think the, yeah, it's surprising how we're, you know, I feel like just even like 
10 years ago, most people would not describe themselves as photographers. I think everybody like liked photography, but they were like, Oh, I don't have an eye, you know? And then I think that's changing. People are realizing that you can, you can practice, you can get better and you can look at what other people are doing and emulate them. And, um, yeah, I think as a whole, people appreciate photography better today than they did five years ago and better than they did 10 years ago. And they're taking more pictures than ever before as well. So yeah, I feel like, uh, the industry has, and also the camera's gotten better. There's built in stabilization. There's built in HDR that's gotten really good. Um, and they have the wide angle lens and there's so many things now that, um, the, the technology is finally kind of caught up, um, to where I think I'm hoping that, uh, we will be successful. <laughs> Good stuff. Back in episode six, we had Brendan Schauer from rare.org who are committed to helping communicate, um, modern times communication, uh, the importance of sustainability and the, the critical nature of climate change. And, and one thing that we got into was this idea of, of how to how brands need to be on the right side of history and, and how the moral obligations that, that we all face today can define, um, should define a brand's mission. And, uh, you know, essentially what we, what we talk about in the episode is these seven steps that are easy ways that we can all real, make real impact on, on slowing down climate change. Um, but we also talk about how to communicate those seven things to to young people. Um, we compare it kind of to the schoolhouse rock that 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 Brendan and I had when when we were kids. Um, and and then finally we get into this big concept of how brands can can change the way you feel about yourself um, and also change the way that others feel about you. So this is, these are all huge concepts. It was a super interesting conversation and. Uh, and I, I think everyone should listen. Um, and if you want to know anything about climate change and what you can do, this episode is the episode to find out. I think we're going to see kind of more, more companies realize there's the right side of history. Plus, there's the added pressure of uh, ESG investing, which is environmental social governance, which has seen a humongous influx of investment dollars. It's about a third of the investment market right now where wow. there's more rules, there's more regulations, there's more things you have to live up to in these categories. And the measurements are going to get better and better where companies are going to look for, um, you know, where can we find another advantage? And so, um, you know, it's called scope three in terms of what your employee base can, can start to do. And can you affect those kind of, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an externality of your, your company, but it, it's not like your, your manufacturing mill. Um, but it's some of the, the carbon that you're creating by being an employer. So how do you, how do you help people, you know, reduce that? Yeah. You know, as we went through the seven, um, and we talked a little bit about this before, we talked about Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, and, and you know, that I'd like to believe that, you know, it, it helped um, a generation or maybe more, more than one generation, you know, get down like their, their grammar and understand what a bill is. Um, you know, it was just a really powerful tool. 
And, and I think about young people today and, and the seven things, right? And I'm try, I've been trying to like, as you're talking, I'm also trying to like come up with tunes in my head of how would you sing that? How, how could you make that, you know, more catchy? And, and I mean, are you guys, are you guys looking at, at that type of messaging as well? Yeah, we've, um, we've looked at and played with gaming because that's obviously a huge, you know, that's, that's a little bit the new schoolhouse rocks. Uh, and we're looking at also at content like, uh, like video content, like uh, you, your schoolhouse rocks example. I think schoolhouse rocks helped do two things. Like it helped you tell, know what was important. Like, okay, yeah. Knowing about the constitution, that's important. Uh, and then made it sticky. Right. Because there's an yeah. easy way to keep it in your head of what's the preamble. Got it. OK, <laughs> I can yeah. sing the preamble. Yeah. Right. Uh, so and, and that overcomes a little bit of a, a psychological, you know, um, obstacle. So we're, we're really interested also in the ability of content to create that new norm. Like, how, how do I see Rob out there driving his EV? How do I see someone I respect um, doing something because it's, it's not abnormal. It's not weird that he's driving the EV. It's actually just part of life now. And how do we set yeah. that up? Yeah. I, I used to, I used to believe that there were some brands that, you know, it didn't matter who you were. They did a slight change to how the world would view you. Right. And so the example I, at the time I was fascinated with Porsche. And, and I had this like little presentation I would do and it would be like, I would show like three people standing at the ballet. Right. And I would ask like, what do you think this guy does? What do you think this woman does? What, tell me about them. Right. And, and we would go with stereotypes. Right. So if the guy was like a little overweight and, and unshaven and wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and flip flops, you know, people would think maybe not super highly of this person. Right. Yeah. And then you'd do the same exercise, but here comes their car. Right. And now all of a sudden he's like some musician. Right. right. And everybody, everybody changed and, and they didn't change, but this association changed. And I think that EVs are there too, where now when you see somebody in an EV to your point, you, you, your opinion of them slightly adjusts, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 you give. I think you give them the benefit of the doubt to say, "Oh, this person. There's part of them that's doing it because they care. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're being thoughtful." And and I mean, of the seven, it feels to me like the E is going to be the front runner. Right. I'm not saying it's the easiest because it's not because yeah. it, it, it's, it's an expensive one. Yeah. Right. Let's let's not joke like a Tesla is an expensive car. Even base model Teslas are very expensive. Um, but, you know, vaults and there'll be more. And eventually Tesla will have a, a, a what I would consider an affordable vehicle that people can get. But I mean, it will still carry that message, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, First, I, I want to say, you know, the Teslas do appear more expensive, but over the life of the vehicle, it's a Tesla S is cheaper than a Camry because mm -hmm. uh, you're not paying gas, you're not having the same servicing fee, et cetera. Uh, I think that's one of those barriers in people's minds. And it's also a real uh, barrier because there's upfront costs, right? Instead of 
costs uh, distributed over time. But yeah, um, I, I, I'm on to you with the idea of the EV, it's very public. It can be seen. Um, and particularly with new, new technologies, the things that drive adoption, it's been well studied, are things like can, trialability. Can I try it? Observability. Can I see someone else doing it? Compatibility. Does it work with the other things in my life? Right. And so uh, EV sort of compatibility probably has a lot of things going for it. Um, you know, other than you just need to charge it up differently than the gas. That's the only thing that's really different uh, compatibility. Otherwise, you know, drives on the same roads, works the same. Um, it's it's it all fits. Yeah, and it's cool. <laughs> In this final clip, I speak with Lior Root and Sophia Trunzo from Paradigm Media, and we really get into the brass tacks of, of how to build a brand, how to build customer um, engagement, and, and we go so far as to talk about, you know, basically formulas of, of how to grow audience, and uh, it's a really valuable conversation for for those who want to build a brand online and are, are getting um, traction with, with ad spend, um, Lior and Sophia are just master tacticians who, who have all of these great techniques and, 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 and really, again, um, it's all about bringing some value. I, I think this is a great one to show what happens when we, when we sit down and talk to people about the actual nuts and bolts of you guys look at the customer journey and how specifically what gets fine-tuned given you know the the rules around and the constraints and and kind of the the tabooness that i talked about for for customers who you're trying to onboard with with cbd products yeah so i think it goes back for a second and to talk about this industry and how hard it is uh, to acquire a customer because like you said we are selling a product that still requires some educational um, and also most of these products are ingested into your body um, and the reason to take them uh, is to better your lifestyle or health and so the amount of touch points and that it takes to acquire a customer is much larger and specifically in the e-commerce and than any other product that we came across and uh, we both come from digital marketing and industry and had you know experience in the past with other e-com businesses uh, but when it comes to cbd or the cannabis industry in general and um, it's a much different animal and um, so when we talk about the journey that they go through and um, we have to remember that the amount of touch points that it requires and um, to acquire them and um, is somewhere between nine to sometimes even 25. 
And so when we started working in this industry, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot. Of, wow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even yeah. we onboard, you know, brands that have been doing it for a while or brand new brands that are just launching. When we say those numbers, they are shocked, but also it makes sense because if they've been doing it for a year or two or three and are struggling with, um, you know, increasing their revenue and they don't understand why, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why, because they don't understand what the journey that a customer has to go through before they become a loyal customer. And so our... And and do you think... do you, yeah. do you think that part of that is, and we mentioned it before, but, you know, that that the, the touch points have to build credibility for a product that is so, you know, confusing? Exactly. Yeah. It's credibility, it's education, and it can be so many different things that, you know, the authenticity. Yeah. That's what, a huge one. Yeah. What yeah. makes them different. So, I'm sure as you know, most people who looked into CBD a little bit have been retargeted and their news feeds are probably filled with different CBD brands that are coming up every week. And so at this point, I think the last time we heard was over 5,000 um, new CBD brands in the U.S. today. So <laughs> if you think wow. about it, there are how many how many of those? Yeah, how many of those companies do you think are legit? And uh, unfortunately, like versus you know, like company. I think because yeah, I'm, I'm I, that's my that's my big concern, right? Is that yeah. so many like there's going to be so many opportunists that just jump in there and like, oh, we can just like white label some stuff and create a fake brand and you know paint yeah. it, paint it pink and we'll get this audience or whatever. Those are the brands that we're not. All right, then. That is our episode from the week. Uh, we really hope that that you've enjoyed the episode so far. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, this was a good sampling of the type of, of conversations we're having and the types of industry experts that we're bringing on um, and, and, and dialoguing with. So next week, we'll be back with a brand new episode. Um, And in the meantime, we hope everybody has a great week. Um, Make sure you subscribe and uh, and take care of yourselves. Um, This is DTC Growth Hacking. My name is Rob McGray. The episode was uh, produced by Field Test and sound engineered by Garrett Griebel. We'll see you guys later. This was a Field Test Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 